Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Welcome to Pages of Popcorn podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, talk about movies based on books, as well as the source material they are based on. Today we will be discussing Ella Enchanted. Ella Enchanted was a novel written by Gail Carson Levine and published in 1997 that was made into the 2004 movie starring Anne Hathaway. But before we do that, we're going to tell you all the ways that you can get in touch with us on the internet. You can email us at pagesofpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Facebook and just type Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. We would like to thank our patrons for their continual support. $1 or $5 a month helps us keep doing this. We'd also like to thank all of you who have rated and reviewed us on iTunes and other platforms. Those ratings and reviews help the algorithms find us, which helps other people find us, which helps our audience grow, which is a good thing. So if you haven't yet done it, please share us on social media, like and follow us on social media, and rate and review us on iTunes or other platforms. Thank you so much. And now on with the show. Are you ready? Are you set? Are you excited? I'm ready. But are you set? I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay. Okay, once upon a time. No, just kidding. Here is the book. Ella of Frel is given at her birth the gift of obedience by Lucinda the fairy. She is now forced to follow through with every command that she is told. This has disastrous results, such as eating until sick. Because if someone says, eat that, and then walks away, she can't stop eating until she's given another order. 
She lives with her wonderful mother, the Lady Eleanor, the cook Mandy, and her father, who's only seldom home. When Ella is around 14, she and her mother are, get very, very sick. Ella recovers, but her mother dies. The cook, Mandy, reveals herself to be Ella's fairy godmother. She can't undo the curse that Ella's under because that is considered big magic, and Mandy only does small magic. At her mother's funeral, Ella meets the kingdom's prince, Charmont, or call me Char, who expresses fondness for her mother. At the wake, she's introduced to Dame Olga and Dame Olga's terrible daughters, Hattie, who's cruel and wears a wig, and Olive, who is simple and obsessed with money. Ella's father has decided to send Ella off to finishing school, and it happens to be the same finishing school that Hattie and Olive also attend. Before leaving, she visits all of her favorite places once again, running into Char. He enjoys her company. They banter back and forth. At the Royal Menagerie, they encounter a gnome toddler who's too close to the ogre pen. Char saves him in time, but hands him to Ella. Ella is then ordered by the ogre to bring the child to the ogre. Against her will, she starts forward towards the pen, but they are saved when Char commands her to stop. Ogres in this world, by the way, are magic users. They can charm people to do their bidding. Ella and Char bond over foreign languages. They tease one another. They're bonding. Oh, it's so sweet. But alas, it is time for her to go to school. She's given two gifts by Mandy, a gnome-crafted necklace from her mother and a magic book which allows her to see diary entries, letters, and fairy tales. This is not seen as creepy, by the way. On the trip to finishing school, Hattie discovers that Ella does whatever she's told. She uses this to her advantage. Her first act is to steal Ella's mother's necklace, and then she deprives Ella of food for the next three days. At school, Ella is constantly ordered and corrected, taking solace in her new friend, Arida. When Hattie orders Ella to end her friendship with Arida, Ella cannot stand this, and she sets off to find Lucinda so that she can reverse the spell. She learns of a giant's wedding and hopes to find Lucinda there. Her father will also be attending the wedding of the giants. Ella comes to the kingdom of elves, who offer a warm welcome and provisions for the journey ahead. They like her, although they're not too enamored with her father. The next morning, she awakens surrounded by ogres. They plan on devouring her. She's given the command to not run away, and so she is trapped. She stays up all night, practicing her persuasive orgnese in hopes of using it on the ogres. It works. She talks them all back to sleep, just in time for Char and his soldiers to show up and apprehend them. The men are impressed with Ella's ability. One of the men is sent to escort Ella to the giant's wedding. It's giant wedding time. Lucinda curses the bride and groom with the gift of never being apart. Two other fairies in attendance give her crap for ruining the newlyweds' lives, and she responds with saying, well, I guess I could turn them into a squirrels. No, 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 it's fine. This gift is fine. Overhearing this, Ella decides to use an alias when talking to Lucinda. Ella tells Lucinda that she desires more metal. She is too obedient. Lucinda tells Ella to be happy to be blessed with such a lovely quality, and now Ella is forced to feel happiness. No matter what the command, she'll be happy to oblige. During the carriage ride home with her father, Ella is happy to learn that he's lost everything and she's going to have to be married off. She's happy that she gets to be introduced to a much older duke. Her father uses magic mushrooms to make Ella extra flirty. Again, not seen as overly creepy. And her father determines that the duke is too broke to marry her since he hasn't the time to find her another suitor. Instead, he is going to marry Dame Olga. Thankfully, it's around this time that Mandy countermands the happiness order, thankfully, which is really good because it was getting very, very gaslighty and creepy. At Ella's father's wedding to Dame Olga, Lucinda's in attendance and she gifts this bride and groom with eternal love. After the wedding, Ella sneaks away as to not be seen by Lucinda. 
She's found by Char. The two of them wander through an old castle looking for secret passageways. Their search comes up drive and they settle on an indoor garden. They find glass slippers and a random old bench. They fit Ella. They fit her feet perfectly because she has tiny fairy feet. The slippers fit. So there they are. Now it's time to dance. They dance and they talk and they flirt and they bond and they discuss that he's leaving on a year-long trip to uh, to Erothian, which is where Arida is from. And then they slide down the banisters and they're having such a wonderful time. Yay for falling in love. In the ride to Olga's house, Ella's father reveals that he is broke. Olga's livid, but so loves him thanks to Lucinda's curse. Char comes to visit Ella the next day, but Hattie orders her to stay in her room. This continues until Char leaves on his trip. They start communicating via letters, which Ella has some address to Mandy so to not arise suspicion from her new stepfamily. Her father leaves for work. Hattie reveals Ella's curse to Olga, who makes Ella work as a servant in the house. Now she's living in rags and being all servant-esque. So this is now our full-on Cinderella aspect. After months of communicating with each other, Ella falls in love with Char, but is uncertain of his feelings. Char then professes his love to her and wishes for her to be his queen. Ella's excitement is short-lived when she realizes her curse could be used against him and is very dangerous, since he would one day be the king. She decides they should never be together, and writes a letter from Hattie to mislead Char into thinking that Ella has run off with a rich earl. Mandy hates to see Ella so hurt and calls Lucinda to tell her to go under the gift of obedience for three months and three months as a squirrel, kind of to learn her lesson. So during the next six months, Ella continues to endure the torments of her stepfamily, as well as writing letters that she cannot send to Char. He obviously now thinks that she was a horrible person and isn't writing to her. And she learns that Char will be returning soon because she gets to still read his diary in a non-creepy way with her magic book. Whatever. There's going to be three royal balls. Lucinda comes back feeling horribly for Ella. She did not like being a squirrel. She did not like being obedient. Unfortunately, she's unable to break the spell. Lucinda says that Ella can only break it herself, but she'll help Ella if she needs any help with things like clothes or magic or shoes or whatever else. Okay. When Prince Char returns from his travels, Ella goes to the balls in disguise with the help of Mandy and Lucinda. There are jewels and a pumpkin into a carriage and all the Cinderella trappings that we recognize. Ella wears the glass slippers from the old castle. At the first ball, she dances with Char, who still wants Ella, after a chance meeting with the writer makes him question the letters that he's received. On the second night, Char begs the in-disguise Ella to come the following night to see him and perform a song. The third night, he introduces her to his parents and dances only with her. But Hattie is jealous and unmasks Ella, causing her to flee, losing one of her glass slippers. Char finds the slipper and goes to her home. He asks her to tell him if she loves him, which she does. He then tells her to marry him. She says yes. Hattie orders her not to, so she says she can't. Then Olga realizes that with the curse and being queen, they could have anything and everything, that, and she demands that Ella marry Char. Still concerned for the safety of Char and the kingdom, Ella finds the inner strength to refuse this command, thus breaking Lucinda's spell. Now Ella is able to marry Char on her own accord, and she happily accepts. They live happily ever after, Ella and Areta reconnect. Mandy becomes the castle cook and fairy godmother to Char and Ella's future children. So now it's time for the movie. Ella Enchanted, like I said, 2004 romantic comedy film. And here's our recap. First off, the movie is framed with a narrator, who's Eric Idle, and it has contemporary rock music. Just getting that little bit out of the way. In the kingdom of Larnia, Baby Ella Afrel is given the gift of obedience by misguided and obnoxious fairy godmother Lucinda. Ella is magically compelled to instantly obey any command she is given. There's also a cute little trill sound that happens every time, so the audience knows, yep, that's an order. On her deathbed, Ella's mother, Lady Eleanor, warns her not to tell anyone about the gift for fear someone might use it to exploit Ella. 
Only Mandy, the slightly bumbling household fairy, knows the secret. Years later, Ella's father, Sir Peter, marries wealthy socialite Dame Olga, who dislikes Ella. Her spoiled daughters, Hattie and Olive, discover Ella's obedience and use it to humiliate her. They also force her to steal and give away her mother's necklace. At a mall opening, while protesting the bad treatment of ogres, elves, and giants, Ella has a meet-cute with Prince Char, Cheremont, when he, pursued by his besotted fan club, runs away from the festivities. He is taken with her because she's not like other girls, and she is not enamored with him. He invites her to his coronation ball, but Olga intercepts the invitation. Jealous, Hattie and Olive force Ella to cut ties with her best friends, Areta. Ella resolves to find Lucinda to undo her gift. Mandy lends Ella her boyfriend, Benny, whom she has accidentally transformed into a magic book. Learning that Lucinda is intending a wedding in Giantville, Ella leaves home to find her. On her journey, Ella rescues Slannon, an elf who wants to be a lawyer rather than be forced to be an entertainer, as all elves are being forced to be. They are captured by ogres, who intend to eat them, but are rescued by Prince Chermont. He joins them as he intends to avenge the death of his father, King Florian, and Ella opens his eyes to the cruelty of the laws oppressing elves and giants enacted by Char's parental uncle, Sir Edgar, who is serving as acting ruler. Also, Sir Edgar has a magic-talking snake named Heston, for some reason. They discover that Lucinda has already left, and Char suggests visiting the castle's hall of records to find her faster, which is overheard by the snake. After Ella performs Somebody to Love for the giants at the wedding, she and Char begin to fall in love. At the castle, Edgar learns of Ella's gift from her stepsisters. Knowing his nephew is in love with her, Edgar orders Ella to murder Char at midnight when he inevitably proposes to her in the coronation ball and then to keep the plan secret. Edgar reveals that he murdered Char's father, and the prince's death will make Edgar king for reals. Ella writes Char a letter, saying she must leave, but cannot explain why. She has Slannon chain her to a tree, hoping to wait at Edgar's command, while Slannon recruits more elves and giants to protect Char. As night falls, Lucinda appears, and Ella begs her to take back her gift. Offended, Lucinda insists that Ella remove the gift herself, and then unchains her, and then gives her a fancy dress. So forced back to the castle, Ella stumbles into the ball. Char whisks her away to a secret hall of mirrors where he proposes. As Ella is about to stab Char in the back to fulfill her command, she sees her reflection and commands herself to no longer be obedient. Thus, she has freed herself from the curse slash gift. Char notices the dagger, and Edgar has Ella arrested before she can explain herself. Benny, who's been left in the hall of records and thrown out, is found by Slannon. Benny reveals Ella in the dungeon, and Slannon sneaks into the castle along with a band of elves, giants, and ogres, and frees her. Benny shows that Edgar has poisoned Char's crown, intending to kill him at the coronation. As Char is about to be crowned, Ella and the others crash the ceremony in a brawl with Edgar's soldiers ensues. In the scuffle, Mandy manages to turn Benny into a pumpkin, oops, and then a human again. As Char and Ella fight off the guards together, she confesses her love for him and reveals Edgar's plot and his murder of Char's father, which Edgar denies. Heston almost fatally bites Char, but is kicked away by Ella and then trampled by Char's fan club. Char takes this as evidence of his uncle's guilt, somehow. Edgar then denounces the prince and attempts to proclaim himself king, and he puts on the poison crown and collapses. Soon after, Char and Ella are married, much to the envy of Ella's stepsisters, and Char toasts in a new era, era of equality among all citizens of the kingdom. Edgar is revealed to still be alive, but physically and cognitively impaired, and this is kind of played for a laugh and it's very uncomfortable, but now the cast perform a final dance number of Don't Go Breaking My Heart before the newlyweds ride off on their honeymoon. It's a lot. And that's the end. Okay. They're almost like two completely separate stories. I mean, the author said that. She, yeah. yeah. So 
before we get into like where we came from and all the other things, I have one little thing to say. Anne Hathaway, who was Ella, first read the book when she was 16. Um, said there was originally a version of the script that was much closer to the book, but it didn't work as a film. She prefers the way the movie actually turned out because it makes fun of itself for being a fairy tale. Levine, the author, or I'm not sure if it's Levine or Levine, honestly, states that the film is, quote, so different from the book that it's hard to compare them, noting the addition of new characters, yada yada, and says, suggests that you regard the movie as a separate creative act. Which, fair. <laughs> like, they are very, very different from one another. They start off similar with some little tweaks, and then they just really diverge. And... I mean, I'm not going to jump all the way to the end here, but um, I think some of the changes were good. Some of them not so good. Uh, yeah, but I don't want to jump too far. So how, how did you come to this book and this movie? Tell me about I, your personal journey, Jennifer. <laughs> so it's a little funny. Last night I was re-watching the film with my mom, and the two of us had seen it in the theater years and years and years ago. So I had no idea about the book. I just, it was a cute little thing to see with my mom on a matinee. And for a matinee, it wasn't money ill spent. But after reading the book, I have a different opinion of the movie. <laughs> so did you read the movie for this podcast or had you read the, or read the book for this podcast or had you read the book before? I read the book uh, a couple of years ago and it's been a while, so I had to reread it, but I saw the movie first. Okay. So I had heard about this movie, um, but never seen it. I mean, it came out when I was in my early 20s. It just, it wasn't really on my radar or overly much. I knew Anne Hathaway. Um, I'm pretty sure The Princess Diaries came first. And I had such a visceral hate reaction to the previews. I'll be full disclosure to the previews of The Princess Diaries that I was never able to watch The Princess Diaries. And so Anne Hathaway was kind of a turn off a little bit. I was like, oh, it's another Anne Hathaway movie and like just never gave it another thought. And then it was on a list of somewhere and um, we had the book because at one point I I'd found the book at some point and bought it for my daughter. And so we had it and I thought, okay, well, let's do this. Um, read the book first as I often do and then saw the movie and actually read the book out loud to my daughter, Ella who's also named Ella. She's not named after this character at all, but they do share a name. So my my Ella and I read the book together and then watched the movie together. So that was a fun little journey. And I do have about six or six and a half minutes or so of her giving her thoughts on the book and the movie and um, the differences and what she liked and didn't like. Which I will. It's gonna be cute. Yeah, I I'll either sprinkle it into this episode or I'll put it all at the end. I'm not exactly sure, but anyways, so so we watched the movie and uh, yeah, lots of lots of lots of big feelings actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's start with the book. The book is amazing. It is incredibly well written. It is very sweet and one of the best parts of the book is it, it's definitely a, a flipped retelling reboot reimagined version of the Cinderella type story right you know you got the stepsisters you got her she's like working as a slave in her own house there's glass slippers there's balls um you know okay even like the prince chair is short, char is short for charmant which in french means charming like okay prince charming like the whole thing right i get it right um 
but I liked the way it was a little subversive. I liked that Ella in the book was snarky and like fought back against her curse. Um, she would obey the letter of the of the command. They would take my shoes off. I'll take them off and then I'll throw them out the window. You know, pick yeah, this up. I'll pick get it up. Some almonds and I'll bring back two almonds for your dessert. Yes, exactly. Like I loved that. And also, she was more than just um, an aristocrat with an interesting curse. Like she learned languages she was really good at language learning and she was funny and she was witty and she thought about things and she was brave and she i mean she just she's like one of those girl characters in a fairy tale where you're like this is cool um and the book she's did... a smart character and she figures things out and it's a very interesting look at agency mm, yes because it's like there's parts there's a certain aspect where your power has been taken away from you, but then there's a lot of Ella in the book where she is reclaiming her power. And yeah, I just, I, I really liked Ella in the book. I liked her I, a lot. I um, have a little bit from the author that I wouldn't yeah. mind reading if we have time. Go ahead. So this is what, uh, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. This is what Living wrote about the story. Cinderella is such an important tale. But when I considered it, I realized I didn't like Cinderella or understand her. She's so disgustingly good. And why does she take orders from horrible stepmother and stepsisters? It's hard to write a book about a character who annoys and puzzles you. I was in trouble until I thought of the curse of obedience. Then I got it. Ella has to do what she's told. She takes revenge whenever she can. While I was writing, the curse was the explanation and problem that set the whole story going. I realized only later that I had created a message for me. When I am pressured to do something, I tend to knuckle under. Instead, I should be figuring out what's best for what, or figuring out what's best and what I want. Then I should act on that assessment, even if people are disappointed and angry. Yeah. That is a fantastic lesson. This book is super feminist. Yeah. It's, and you can't say that about, I think, most other Cinderella stories, um, ever ever after being the exception, but this is not, that, that's not what we're talking about today. Um, but yes, this, this, it was great. And another aspect of this book, and I just love that the author did this, is the world. The world building in the book is phenomenal. There's ogres and there's gnomes and there's centaurs who are like pets. <laughs> and, which was weird that because- That felt so creepy to me, just seeing this human face that's blank on top of a centaur. It's and... very strange, especially like the last thing that I personally read that had centaurs in it was Harry Potter. And so <laughs> it's just like, these are like, yeah, that was a little weird. They're, they're... I'm... I'm glad that they didn't get overly described because I was like, oh, they must just be more horsey. Like, maybe they have horsey yeah, heads. Yeah, so it's like they have horse brains. They're kind of empty-eyed. Yeah, I, I definitely pictured them more horsey heads. And then, like, with still, like, the torso, maybe, and the hands. And then the, of a human. I mean, just, it's bizarre. It's very weird. Um, Good note, they were not in the movie. Thank God. Because that would have just been awful. Yeah. It, from a visual standpoint, seeing an empty-headed human like that would have been creepy. Yes. But there were the gnomes, and there were the ogres, and there were, like, there's trolls, all the other, and the giants and stuff, okay? And what I liked, and then there was, like, this, this, and I don't think it was all that subtle, but there was definitely, like, there was classism, but then there was, like, racism. Like, the Erotheans, like, Erothia was this other land, and it seemed like they were darker-skinned and different, and her friend, Areta, was from this, this land where they didn't talk as much. And that's where Char had gone for six months or whatever to, like, learn, you know, how to be a good king. And 
and so like that all was very interesting but there was like intermixed there's like the the gnomes are just walking around with people and it's it's interesting because the languages were important and the fact that um ella could speak elvish and gnomish and learned how to speak orgies was a testament to her you know but it also kind of made the world very diverse and not just full of a bunch of white french people the way well it's also it's because i've written some stuff in this capacity when you have races like elves and humans that look fairly similar how do you really make them distinct without making them into a caricature so the ogres have this really different sort of power it's a little bit like the voice from dune where if you just kind of pitch your voice right if you get that kind of you know sort of um oily kind of sensation i guess ella describes it as this sort of unctuous quality to your voice you can control people just by pitching it the right way and ogres are awful creatures they're not misunderstood whereas in the movie they're just kind of big dumb thicker humans right who are also still trying not really anything different about them yeah for sure and and the elves and stuff too in the book i felt like it's hard when you're world building to not create monocultures and i love star trek you know that but they that's a failing that star trek often has is that there's this monoculture what do you know about klingons they are warlike. What do you know about Ferengi? They are greedy. What do you know about elves? They are beautiful. What do you know about, you know what I mean? Like, it's like one thing. And this, the book to me went beyond that. And we have elves that had more layers. We had giants that had more layers. We had ogres that had more layers. We had gnomes that had more layers. Like, you know. It's the difference between like a culture and a caricature. Yes. Whereas a culture, you have still individual personalities coming out. But it wasn't, you know, being knocked on your head. It wasn't, there was never this heavy exposition of, in this land, we have all these people and these people do this and these people do this and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, none of that. It was just, it was very lived in. This felt like a very lived in, real world that had been built for this book and i just really dug that yeah um it makes me want to read other books that she's written because she's written another at least another one that's in this same world so that was really good i really enjoyed ella in this book i really enjoyed the feminist aspect she rescues herself from the ogres i mean heck yeah um I, I loved the world building of this book. I love the relationship between Ella and Char. Like, it was... It develops. They yes. have time to actually get to know each other. They have a year of writing letters to each other. Yep. And that brings depth to the character. It's not love at first sight. It's not the trope. Exactly. And, I mean, there's a little of stupidity of, does he really like me? I mean, come on, girl. But, like, at the same time... Well, it's middle school, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But it, but it was very believable, and I just, I just liked it. I liked it so much that it was allowed to grow and change. And that is a thing that you can do in novels that you can't do in movies: is the idea of time passing. You know, this novel takes place over t- at least two years, maybe more. Yeah. Like it's, it's a serious amount of time in Ella's life. Um, but I love the meshing of their characters, where she brings some lightheartedness to them, him, and they get to understand sort of the deeper values of each other. Like he says, you know, everyone thinks I'm really cool because I did this thing when I was a kid, but I just really wasn't that big a deal. And you're the only one who really knows that. And then there's this other time when my father was hit by a tomato, but he took it very graciously. I don't think I could do that. I hold grudges. This is probably a failing of mine. But letting someone know the less than 
pretty aspects of yourself is a lot of trust. Yeah, for sure. Which, you know, yeah. I was going to say, that's a, it's a thing. Ella definitely has trust issues. And she knows exactly kind of how to, to mess. She knows that he's going to hold the grudge and such. So that's, you know, it makes it easy for her to find a way to, to distance herself and break his heart and yada, yada. Um, which is, is it. So there, there's a few, there's a few things. The, there's the manipulation. So I don't, there's some creepy bits, yeah. Yeah, she, she knows exactly, because he has trusted her and opened up himself to her, she knows exactly how to manipulate him into feeling the things that she wants him to feel. She has the best motives, you know, it's for his own good, but it's still not great. And then also the book, the magic book, that lets her see people, um, creepy, um, and yeah, that's very spying. And know, then you're... also read their personal letters and read their personal journals, and it's never acknowledged about like how that's creepy. It's so invasive. Oh my god. Um, I'm sorry, Mandy. That is fucking big magic, right? I don't know. <laughs> like, where are your lines? Yes, this broken bowl, all fixed. That's little magic. Um, being able to spy on anybody in the in the entire world uh that's fucking big is all i'm gonna say so yeah you're reading their diaries yeah i i just so that the magic was not internally consistent to me like the mythos of the magic and like so mandy was a house fairy but also was a godmother but then also was but then there's other fairies that that did other things like there was a fairies at the at the wedding who aren't Lucinda who were just like kind of there but like I didn't really understand what the, there was no fairy land like there the fairies were very strange that was did not seem overly developed um I liked the idea in the book that we had Lucinda basically taking her own medicine living you know as obedient she was a child an obedient child and living as a squirrel and realizing how both of those things like super sucked it's so just an idea of privilege of, well, of course I give good gifts until you actually have to take your medicine. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it, it was kind of the best intentions from her perspective, since she's never lived in that. And the people, um, the giants call her out and say, you just ruined their lives by giving them this, this gift of never being able to be apart because that's a great lesson about relationships is that you do need to be apart. You do need to grow as your own person to be better in a relationship. Well, you have to have a break from the other person or you'll never have anything new to talk about, right? If you are constantly experiencing the exact same world. Like I I used to live with my, we were engaged and we worked together and we commuted together. And so like from sun up to sundown and all the nighttime parts too, we were like to in the basically the same room, right? You get up, you get ready for work, you drive in the same car, you get to the building. We were in slightly different parts of a big room. Do you know what I mean? For hours and hours, we would take our lunch together. We go back to work at our retail job. Then we would get back in the car. We would maybe run an errand together, get home together, eat together, watch TV together, go to bed together. And it was fucking soul crushing. Like, Oh my God. Um, we're in quarantine right now and I have not been away from my husband. You know, uh, we have been together for five and a half months now, but we go into different rooms. He goes to his job. I do my thing. I go for a walk. He goes for a walk. Like we're not joined at the hip 24 seven. And so even though it is slightly stressful, 
for a variety of reasons. Like we don't hate each other because we have space to, you know, encounter yeah, the world. Yeah, you have to be your own person before you can be a couple. Exactly. And you have to maintain your individual identity and your individual space. For sure. So that's a great little story to have in there. And it, and it definitely... As for the father, you know, you said it's not really common to that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, the story of the giant's wedding and that thing, it totally parallels into Ella and Char, where they meet, and then they have to have this time apart. I mean, he's gone, and they're writing these letters, and so they're both going through their own lives. They're both maturing separately and learning about the world, and she's you know, this and that, and he's learning how to become a prince and how to become a king and being exposed to other cultures that then they can talk about back and forth. And that, that adds to their relationship. So it was, it was very well done, I thought. Anyways. It's also kind of getting away from love at first sight. And when you first meet somebody having that emotional rush and being able to think about a person with a clear head while still developing the relationship. Mm -hmm. yes. But, you know, going to the father... And the whole, well, you have to be happy about your obedience and eat the mushrooms felt that was super creepy. Uh, yes, this, the other thing that was super creepy was the mushrooms. Yeah. Um, mind altering. It's basically they're like roofy mushrooms, right? They <laughs> just, oh my God. So, so, so gross. I, I mean, so at least I, there it's a little called out because like Mandy's like, this is wrong, but Part of what I see in that is sometimes as an author, you kind of have to let your readers decide what's going on, but you have the consequence when she doesn't have to obey anymore. She feels sick to her stomach. You know, you have the, the response to let you know that's the effect it had. See what I mean? So you don't have to call it out so much. You let your readers go down the path and go, oh, wow. So that was the response. That is super creepy. If you had the same thing going on where the prince was able to go, what, you read my diary? Why would you do that? That's that's invasive and terrible. Then that would have been sort of the commentary that you would need to show the effect of that. Right. But he never finds out that she does that, though. So. No, I wish there was something to that because it is invasive. But I think that the novel is calling out the father because he's never considered a good person. He is a selfish jerk throughout the entire thing. Okay, but see, that's my problem. So the father is, is a bad guy, right? He's selfish, he's bad, blah, blah, blah. And he does these creepy mushroom things. And we know that that's bad, partly because we see what happens to Ella when she's under the influence of the mushrooms, but partly because it gets called out that it was bad by our good characters, Ella and Mandy. But Ella, our heroine, also does shitty things like spying and reading people's diaries and there's no consequence there's no call out she's like gifted this book from mandy mandy gives her the tools to do this creepy ass thing so basically with mandy's blessing so I, that is very unsettling to me because it's like saying good people can do bad things because they're good people and it's fine their their motives were pure blah 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 who cares but when bad people do bad things then of course we're going to call them out it just feels very unfair yeah, and unbalanced. if there's one thing i would change about the book that would probably be it yeah because the rest of the novel is really good but that's the, that one thing where it's oh, okay that's a little sticky the only other thing i might change is the way she breaks the curse and when i read the book i was like Okay. Okay. So it's, it's I, Ella, my Ella, and I had to talk about it a little bit. So she's being ordered to do something that she wants to do 
emotionally, but rationally she knows it's bad. And it's that mix of wanting to follow the order, but knowing that it's bad that helps her break the curse. Okay, it's sure. Um, I can't imagine that this is the first time she's been ordered to do something that she wanted to do anyways, but maybe maybe that is what we're saying. Well, it was the consequence. I, well, no, yeah, but it I... was both. It was because like she's been ordered to do things with bad consequences before, and she didn't break a curse. But like when she was ordered to break up with her friend, she didn't want to. She emotionally didn't want to, and she mentally didn't want to, but she did. Like all of those things are, all of her orders are like that. She doesn't want to, and she knows it's bad, or and blah, blah, blah. This time it felt like it was one of the first times where she actually wanted the end result. She wants to be with him, but she knows that the consequence is bad. It puts him in danger, blah, blah, blah. So whether it's that weird juxtaposition, like those two things that are not lined up, um, being able to disobey an order when you actually want to do the thing, like that seems like that could break the magic. And then like true love breaking the magic because she loves him so much that she's like, it was almost like she's willing almost to die because her the manifestations when she doesn't do what she's being ordered to do is that she gets really sick, she gets the, throws up, she gets the heaves, like she's in pain, right? So she's willing to go through all of that pain to not obey to protect him. So like almost like a self-sacrificing, give up her life, give up, she, okay, all of that is fine and dandy and well, but I didn't like it as much. <laughs> and as... I thought what they did in the movie was very clever when she looked at herself in the mirror and gave herself an order. And it seems like that was her actually breaking the curse by it, like- I actually really did not. I love this scene and I, I wanted to keep the mirror scene because that was incredibly tricky to do. It's very beautiful with the mirrors all around. From a filming standpoint, they said that was the hardest scene they had to do because of just really having to arrange a camera so you don't see them. And I like that there's the mirrors all around. It's a it's a great way of showing, I guess, like different pathways. And self-reflection. Exactly. So there's a lot of really good imagery there. But after all this time, all you had to do was look in the mirror and go, you don't have to obey. It was just, oh, really? That was... No, see, I, I love it because what that was, was sometimes the, the the solution is so in front of your face that you can't even see it. It's so obvious. And there's a lot of times, there's a lot of stories and things that have that. It's like, oh, this very simple solution that we just didn't think of, and it seems so obvious now. And maybe it wouldn't have worked in the past if she tried it. But like at that point, again, she's got this whole buildup of emotion and she's fighting all the feelings and blah, 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 blah. Um, and the curse itself is magic. Obviously, she didn't have that knife in her hand, and then it suddenly was there, right? So, like, there are forces at work here that are bigger than her. But I, I liked it. I liked, it's like her looking at herself and and taking charge of her own destiny in a very in a very tangible way. I, I dug it. I, I'm going to make um, sort of a comparison of, you know, when my mom wanted to quit smoking, you know, she started when she was smoking at a young age. She couldn't do it on her own, really. But when she was pregnant with me and my brother, she quit those two times because it was somebody else's life that was on the line that she cared about more than anything that would have gotten her to stop beforehand. And when she did finally give up, it was, you know, I said, Mom, you know, do you not love me? Because you're not going to survive if you keep doing this. I'm going to be left without a parent. And that, 
you know, the, the love of somebody else is really what got her for that. So sometimes that motivation is part of growing up when you can see beyond what your own needs are to what's best. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes to what the author was saying. Instead, I should be figuring out what's best and what I want. And maybe those two things aren't the same thing. Yeah. And that's a very adult sort of point that she had to get to. And, and I, I, going along with that, I don't think Ella could have broken her curse when she was younger. I think she had to grow up with it. Yeah. Um, but I think that it would make her a better parent, mother, friend, ruler to have this idea of giving people choice and not dictating things for them. But all that is, all of that is in both of the book and the movie. I just liked the actual curse breaking moment for Ella. I thought it was just more empowering. The other part of like the curse breaking in the book is like, she breaks the curse. Char, Char is like sitting there. He is super confused, right? Like, marry me. Okay, don't marry me. Da, da, da. Like, there's like this thing back and forth. He's like completely out of the loop. And then she's like, no! And then she starts to cry. Like, think about it from his perspective. He doesn't see all this introspective whatever. She's like, no. And then she's like, okay, yes. And she's crying and she's happy. And man, he's like, she couldn't, but now she can. I mean, it is, and, well, and, and yeah, it's literally, I, she breaks the curse on the left-hand side of the book page, and the chapter ends at the very tippity-top of the right-hand side. Like, it is so fast. And then we have our epilogue, you know, and then we lived happily ever after, and everybody was fine and dandy and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, the emotional resonance was not there. It was like two paragraphs of her going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm spiraling, I'm spiraling. No! And then, boom. Whereas in the movie, like... Because we have, you know, we had all the thoughts and we had the things and like her arm is shaking and she has this thing and she's literally making eye contact with herself and it's about herself and it's about her power, who has power over her. In that moment, the only person, entity, who had power over Ella was Ella, giving herself the order to not be, and I just, the symbolism of that. And then there was falling action, which was kind of dumb. They're like, he's like, oh my God, were you going to kill me? I can't believe you're going to kill me. I was about to marry you, but now I can't even like spare 30 seconds to hear your explanation. Okay, whatever. Um, plot contrivance much, but uh, fine. And then we had the whole rest of the movie, but at least we had some response and like something more. And we got to see Ella not being under the curse and like do, doing more things and rejecting orders and all of that stuff. And I just, I felt like the emotional payoff was a little bit more in the movie than it was in the book. So I can see it from Char's perspective, because I was thinking about that while I was reading the scene of, okay, well, she said she loves me, but she can't marry me, but then she has to because her sisters are telling her to, and oh, I'm not getting something that's going on. He's a smart enough character to, to know that there's a gap in his understanding, even as confusing as the scene is, which is a little funny. And it is played kind of for laughs. Uh, but let's go into the differences between movie and book some of the stuff translated really well the decisions they made like i said the mirror room self-reflection different paths what do you do with this curse that was a beautiful visual of the choices that she's going through um and then there's some other stuff that i thought was really cute at the time it came out it's the fractured fairy tale it's very shrek where you have the mall and the stairs are you know, you know, the stairs go down themselves and it, it, it's a, it's an escalator sort of thing. You know, it was cute. You know, there's stuff that's cute like that. Um, 
But towards the end, when she's fighting ninjas and they're having a dialogue during a fight scene, felt really forced and getting ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I mean, okay, here's the thing. You're either in it or you're not. Yeah, it starts with Eric Idle rhyming and mini driver hiding the baby in the closet and then being like oh she's gone for a walk to her grandmother's oh nope she's back and you're like okay this is the movie we're in right you know like it's so over the top ridiculous that it at that point i mean at that point i was i was there for it it was fine um i the fact that <laughs> the fact that ella's like a freaking ninja warrior princess was a little weird. Um, and like it, it, earlier it was like Slen was like, kick his butt. So she kicks the guy's butt. But then he was like giving her orders of like how to fight. So like now she knows how to fight. I don't know. There's also the scene where she freezes and it breaks physics. I was like, well, you know, shoot gold coins out of your mouth. Right. Like, <laughs> at what level are we breaking physics with this film? It's you magic. Know? It's all magic. That's what I mean. Like the curse itself had was like, I, it would be hard to keep that secret, especially when she literally freezes in midair and everyone's like, that's weird. And then like nobody follows up. I'm sorry. That's weird. Like they would have burnt her out as a witch in any other movie. But so she can freeze in midair when she's told to freeze and she's told to kill the guy with that very specific dagger. She obviously doesn't have the dagger with her. When, and then she's like, Lucinda changes her into this fancy dress and she's propelled, you know, forward and she ends up, she doesn't have the dagger with her. And then they're, you know, they're in the, the hall of mirrors. There's no dagger. And then suddenly the dagger's there. So like, the curse has its own mind, apparently. And that was, that was, that's what I mean. Like in the book, the magic wasn't very internally consistent, but it never broke. Elia, fuck you, magical thing. That's right. The book, <laughs> the book never broke it overly. You're like, I don't really buy it or I don't like it or I don't really understand it. But in the movie, you, you definitely like. So this goes to translation where we have a cerebral character figuring things out. That is hard to translate into a movie. It's easier to have her do like some physical actions. And that is empowering for women as well to, you know, have the, the Xena warrior princess come out. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it works for the medium. I just wish it weren't as ridiculous in some scenes. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it just at that point, I the ridiculousness became part of the charm. It was yeah, you, you sign up for a certain amount of silly. Yes, and it was incredibly silly. Um, my kid laughed the whole way through. Right? She. It's, it's a cute, silly. It's a fractured fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was well well received in this house. Um, I thought it was really interesting that there was like this whole social justice aspect. You know, Ella in the movie is yes. very social justice. We want equality. Blah blah blah. In the book, they kind like there was already a bunch of different. Um, there's, there was already diversity and it wasn't really like having to be worked on in the movie. We were like, oh no, we have to, you know, do this. And, and it was very confusing too, because ogres were still bad guys. They still wanted to eat her, but then they're like, not going to eat. I, I was very confused a little bit. Well, there's also like the giants can, you know, they could flick a finger at a human and knock them across, but then they're enslaved. Yeah. It's confusing. So yeah, there, there's a lot of consistency breaking. You know, when you first see the castle, it's surrounded by water and one hill. And then when she's out in the middle of the fields, the castle's just right there. Yeah. It's like, did you not understand the placement of your own thing? <laughs> so it doesn't have the quality and time and thought that the book had to it. No, definitely not. Um, that being said... said that, it's, it's a cute... <laughs> 
forgettable movie. Yeah, fun. It was fun and 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 very goofy and I mean lighthearted. Your seven year old will enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, even I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as the book because the book was just really really awesome. But I didn't dislike it. You know. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It, so it, it's the fractured fairy tale. It's it's Shrek. Yeah. So there's some really cute things. Uh, the opening scene took, I think it was uh, about six months because it combined models with live action. So just shooting that. Uh, and the backgrounds are really beautiful. I don't think all the technology holds up. It was shot in Ireland, so it's really pretty. They had to artificially tint the skies blue because it was always overcast. Yeah. That's how you get green grass. It has to rain. Uh, so some of the effects were right. Um, I thought the the giants were kind of cool. They're a little hippie-ish. They got the mini skirts and go-go boots going on. The elves. And Heidi Klum. <sighs> Heidi Klum is a giant. Very cool. Very cool. I just feel like the elves, it's like, okay, they have to sing and dance. Why not just make them, like, have to create shoes and bake cookies? And you could have them, like, have to fit these niche jobs. I want to see them kind of have to grumble about, ah, okay, let's set up for the next time there's a visitor. Like, you know, have a little fight back to it you know i think that joke could have been taken a little bit further than we have to do the dancing line you know how exhausting would it be to always have to be in dancing clothes and be prepared the second a visitor comes in i think that they they didn't go as far with that as they could have but they definitely there was an element of that especially with them being rounded up to go be the entertainers and it was yeah. like um the giants that stretched in cruelty because yes they're huge and why would they not fight back why are they toiling in the fields but the elves i definitely felt like they were making a very a very obvious um racial point like oh you are only allowed to be entertainers the end right like that's it and how dare you think outside of your station it's kind of like saying yeah. you know oh stay in your lane stay in your lane basketball you're, player i was just gonna player. say you play basketball and you know do rap music because you're black right obviously you can't possibly do anything else be a lawyer what no so like i and certain I, newscasters going you know what just play your football and don't say anything political yeah exactly so i got that and that was that was very clear um the fact that her friend, Arita, was different than everybody else, was a, was a woman of color, was not, I, it's not an accidental thing, you know, that there was this definite classism, bigotry there, and Ella was her friend. Ella was friends with everyone. So I like that they kept that in the movie. So considering it's a 2004 film, we have progressed beyond when it was filmed, it didn't have, at the time, quite the diversity. Yeah, you know, having a best friend who isn't white. You know, Vivica A. Fox is the fairy. Yes. Uh, the guy who plays the book, you know, he said, it, "I finally had a role where I didn't have to do an accent." Right. Yeah. And the book isn't as as the book isn't as creepy in the movie because it's just basically maps, and it does show you what people are doing. It does do that, which is but creepy. You're not reading like their personal but diaries. Yes, exactly. So. Yes, but still creepy, still not acknowledged for being creepy. Also, the movie barely had any um, nods towards Cinderella itself. Like, the glass slippers, technically, kinda. The balls, technically, kinda. The, you know what I mean? The, the, there was no pumpkin. I, there's a lot of 
she was told to go home and, and clean the, the fireplace, but she wasn't the actual servant covered in soot all the time, you know? So like there was like these little bits that were thrown into connected to Cinderella, but it was definitely not a Cinderella story in the same way that the book was. Yeah. So those were actual glass slippers made of actual glass. Yeah. And they broke, like they had two pairs on set and Anne Hathaway broke them both. One other thing have to acknowledge that I didn't like in the book was the fat stepsisters, a lot of fat shaming happening in this book. Mm. Didn't like it. It was not no, there. just ugly shame. Yeah, well, it was ugly shame and fat shame. And um, I didn't like it. In the movie, she was, Hattie was cruel and Olive was simple and a klepto, which was an interesting addition. But uh, in the in the book, they were, it was all about being greedy for Olive and simple, but, um, well, she's also, she came off as younger. Much younger. I, I didn't really like the way that they made fun of her, but I really didn't like the way that, I, the whole thing about Hattie being fat, like, and, and the, both of them, like, shoving food in their faces all the time as a way for Ella to be like, ugh. Like, it, it was, a like, a character aspect to make us dislike them was that they ate a lot and that they were, they were compared to pigs. And I just, I don't know, like... I don't know. Oh, I'll agree with you there. It was not not great. Yeah, you can have them just be, you know, trash people. Right. I did think it was... Oh, well, and then also, like, why have Hattie has bald, and so she has a wig, and so Ella steals her wig at one point, you know? Um, and I get it. Hattie is an awful person and just deserved bad things to happen to her. But I, I just... I. If you were starved for three days, if you had, like, they took your mother's necklace. Oh, no. I'm not saying I wouldn't yeah. necessarily do the same thing. It's just, it's interesting because it makes our Ella character complex. She's not completely perfect all the time. Sunshine, light, and ultra forgiving. Like, you know, I'm thinking yeah. of the Cinderella in the movie, the Disney movie, right? Where she's and just, like... kind of the point is that, you know, she doesn't like this she is rebellious she does find her ways to fight back when right. she can but also taking someone's wig is pretty shitty so <laughs> i'm just understandable though just saying like yeah calling her fat and then taking her wig like obviously hattie had some stuff going on <laughs> just anyways well there's also that scene when hattie really does respect her mm -hmm. you know she sneaks a the little herb into her bouquet mix and well, why do you hate me? Oh, you don't. You actually really do respect me. Yeah, and so that gives her some emotional depth. Right. Just trying to understand what bullying comes from. The, the, again, in the book, there was more explanation of the motivations behind people and stuff. I will say Lucinda's gift to um, Ella's father and Dame Olga, that they would that love, was hilarious. E love each other eternally, but they were like, yes, but from afar. <laughs> yeah. Which that was is so quite funny it's a good workaround well, I, I really love her just from a distance yes it's, it's a good workaround I, yeah that's the only gift that kind of sort of works out because you know he she they married each other for you know it was very definitely a strategic political alliance here and then oh i love you i love you oh by the way i'm broke if she wasn't in love with him that would have been the end of that right <laughs> Can mm. you would imagine there would have been much worse things. I don't know. Just yeah, and the endearment's coming out while he's still doing something awful. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, you were saying, I think, before I had to step away real fast, that the father is, is an awful character, that he's known for being shitty in his trading, you know, and that he gets his comeuppance because he's, he's bankrupt at one point, and I liked that. I liked that Ella could go beyond that. I felt really bad for Ella's mom, you know. She was the Lady Eleanor. Yeah, he's completely changed in the movie. Yeah, they just made him a little know-nothing side character. Okay. So, speaking of, like, added characters, what did you think of the uncle and snake? Um, okay, well, I love that it's Carrie Ellis because uh, my favorite subversive fairy tale is The Princess Bride. And so, having Wesley, Carrie Ellis, now be the evil uncle was just delightful. I... I don't know, man. It's so it's so unnecessary. In the in the book, your your foils for Ella were the stepsisters and her own curse. Like the curse was kind of the main bad guy, right? Um, and then the the stepsisters and were definitely antagonists and yada yada. And in the movie, it wasn't enough to have it be the stepsisters and Damolga. We had to introduce this whole like secret plot of taking over the king and it, I felt like it really undermined Char's character because he was like this doofus who had like never thought yeah, about anything took away Ugh. everything that made him interesting yes and I didn't like that um at all and then there was this freaking animatronic not animatronics it was like what was it I don't even know the technology I can't think of the word right now but like there is a very obvious reference to another film uh, are you going to show me the from Robin Hood? Yeah. Yeah. So if you know it already, but yeah, Robin Hood, Prince John and Sir Hiss. Sir Hiss. Yeah. And he this... had Hester the snake. Heston. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, and, okay. <sighs> Talking about queer coding, which we haven't talked about queer coding yet because we haven't needed to, but apparently now we're going to do it. And I don't. I don't like it when our villains are queer coded. Um, I don't mind True. when we have queer or villains who are queer, but like if I just mm, the whole thing makes me a little bit edgy and like the whole snake aspect and I just it was just dumb. I just it was dumb and the snake was like and at one point the snake broke the fourth wall and looked at the audience and was like, Well that's interesting and it's like, Who are you talking to? You're in a saddlebag and apparently nobody's noticing I just it was dumb and unneeded. I really liked this movie. Okay, I did. But that That's whole what got me about the ending thing. is, okay, we're just going to assassinate him via snake after all this careful plotting. And then the uncle puts on the hat that he poisoned himself. Yes. And it's like, hoist it upon your own potara. I get it. But still. Dumb. It's. And they were like, oh, I've been. That was supposed to be crafty. Yes. I've been training with the Red Guard. These guys are going to swing down because they're like better than the. I mean, too much. Too much stuff. Too many things. It was totally unnecessary. Did not. Did not need. And. Dizzy and shallow. Dizzy and shallow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I liked the whole. Um, the the teen heartthrob aspect with like the fan club and them chasing him and like he, they had like his the pencil sketches of the prince on her wall that was funny okay and I get that the fractured fairy tale like modernizing it and stuff like that was cute but I did not need the uncle did not need the freaking circus considering it, all the care that went into the earlier part of the film yeah and there are some scenes where they really did have to put thought into how they did those scenes that's what I mean about the mirror scene is so intelligently done and had to be so well choreographed 
And then to have that ending when they're doing the line dance, because there's no audience there, but we're doing the sing-along to the audience. Yeah. In a go-go dress. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it felt like, you know, if they did this 10, 15 years later, it would have been the sing-along film. So a little quick thing. Uh, there are some pictures of the author on set. And I never thought about it before, but the author is tiny. There's a picture with her and Anne Hathaway and the Prince, and she just comes up to their shoulders. Well, I didn't know she was tiny either. I don't know Which very is- much about the other. Yes, I, I'm with you. It definitely did feel rushed. And I, you know, the whole song and dance at the end, it was gender flipped. Um, the, she was, uh, Anne Hathaway was singing Elton John's part of the song, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but I, I just, I didn't need the whole uncle thing. I didn't need that, that whole part. I didn't like it. Not a fan. It was well, this stupid. This is kind of what we were talking about and, with Mary Poppins, where sometimes the best villain is somebody who isn't a villain. You can have an right. antagonist without being a villain. Right. And then the other thing that was made me feel very uncomfortable was at the end, like, so that he didn't kill himself. He put that crown on his head, he toppled over, and you think maybe he's dead, which, okay, fine, because you know what? They killed Ella's mom early on, so, like, obviously people die in this world. But no, at the very end, during the song and dance, we wheel him out in a wheelbarrow type thing, and he's got, like, this, look, he's obviously, like, the Wikipedia article said, like, cognitively and physically impaired. I'm like, wow like and that's a joke like oh he got what was coming to him look at him all goofy now over there like basically making the goofy person face because his brain doesn't work anymore and it was just like holy crap like that is dark if that's what he wanted to happen to the prince that then obviously he could like he said he was gonna kill the prince and then rule but like this is like i was gonna say worse but i'm realizing how ableist that sounds but like to be trapped in your body and and unable to communicate or experience life and just to be suffering I, that is that's what it looked like it was being portrayed is just really dark and awful and i i could have done without that like it would have been fine if he'd killed himself by accident i would have actually preferred that just saying yeah that's that's a movie not aging as well as society so um did you have anything else um, I think we can do the cap. I mean, we've covered pretty much everything. There, there's some really funny mentions. Oh, those damn Grimm brothers. And it, it's, to me, the movie is cute, if somewhat forgettable. Mm-hmm. It, it's a really enjoyable film. I could see somebody having it in their library, like, you know, maybe a little Princess Ella that we both know and watching it every once in a while and, and getting a kick out of it. There's some really clever little points, but it falls at the end. You know, they, they could have spent a little bit more time making the film better, but it's okay. It's just not as good as the book because the book is really good. Yes. Agreed. And, like, I know my kiddo will reread this book because she likes to reread books she likes. And so she she moved it into her room. So I know that it'll be reread. And I know she'll probably want to rewatch the movie at some point because it was fun and she freaking giggled her way through the whole time. So were they worth your time? Yeah, for sure. Because neither of them take that long and the book is going to stay with you for a long time because it's incredibly well done. And the movie is going to be popcorn matinee. I think it was nice what you said, matinee. It was like perfect matinee. So get yourself some ice cream or whatever your snack of choice is. And it's it's a fine way to spend an hour and a half, you know, some afternoon when you just need to 
You would even have it on in the background while you're doing other things. Like, it's not a serious movie, but it's definitely fun and it's enjoyable. I, I'm not really sure why Eric Idle is there, but, I mean, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, why have Smash Mouth and Shrek? Why have Modern Rock in A Knight's Tale? Uh, it's just that film. This podcast brought to you by Mild Technical Difficulties, Cats and Shopping. Oh my god. Ironically, you cut out right in the middle of the word difficulties. <laughs> and my growly, growly, um, like my phone has been buzzing, which I know is, I don't know if it's going to show up or not, but my stomach actually growled several times and I'm hoping that that <laughs> is not going to come up. So apparently I need to eat and yes. Okay. And now because this was indeed a kid's movie geared for kids and appreciated by children everywhere. No, I don't know. But this was definitely aimed for kids and had a very childlike quality about it. Let's hear from our very own resident child expert, a child herself, my beautiful daughter, Ella. Yes, the movie was very different from the book. Um, I think that in the book, they don't quite explain why, um, Char would be in danger if he, um, if, um, Ella married him. Right. Like, it talked about how she was afraid that somebody would use her to hurt him, but it never actually happened. We didn't see, like, a tangible example. But in the movie, we totally saw the example of how someone would hurt him with her, use her to hurt him, huh? Yeah. But the movie was pretty funny, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Did you like both of them? Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of giggling happening in the movie. Let's see here. What, can you think of some main differences? Well, Hattie never told anybody that she was, that Ella was cursed, that, that Ella obeyed everything in the book. But she did tell somebody in the movie. That's true. And Ella didn't keep um, and and um, all of them keep asking Ella for money in the movie. That's true. Yeah. All of and also, all all the school things. Yeah, Olive was like a thief instead of being like obsessed with money. So that was interesting. There was no finishing school. Um, there was. Remember? Oh, I. Yeah, they were like in college and they were like doing a little debate. That's true. But there wasn't like the same kind of dancing and stuff. You're right. What about with Ella and the ogres? Was there any big difference there? Yeah. Well, in both times they tried to eat her. Mm -hmm. but, in, but in the movie, Charles was the one who saved her. But in the book, Ella saved both of them. That's right. Yep, that's true. Mandy was young and beautiful as opposed to to being the cook. I was like, well, well, I think Mandy had better magic in the movie than in the, I mean, in the book than in the movie. Yeah, she she had like her little magic, not big magic, and she was good with the cooking and helping Ella out in some little ways, huh? Yeah, but like um. But she was pretty good at the magic, now as in this movie. I mean, like, even at the beginning, she couldn't quite 
get a um, like towel or blanket to um, a different place. Yeah, for when her song. Did you like those new characters? Yeah. The elf was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, another different about the oval thing mm-hmm. is that in the book, and is that in the book, like they have very, very like things that convinced you that they were good and um, were like kind of making you kind of trust them. Whereas in the movie, it wasn't. That's true. The in the book, the ogres had kind of their own magic uh, and language. They had a whole yeah. different language. So did the elves. Mm-hmm. And there were pilots in the symptom in the book. That's true. Yep. And it took longer in the book, right? The whole book took like a much longer period of time. So like the fact that Char and Ella kind of fell in love with each other made sense. Yeah, and I'm sure there wasn't like the fan club. There wasn't the fan club or the evil uncle. Yeah. But I thought they were both good. I think mean, the book is really good, really well written, but the movie was just goofy fun. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Why are you glad you watched it with me? Yeah. Oh. Um, also, um, Ella was treated differently in the movie. Mm-hmm. In the book, it said that um, they made Ella do things and then... They made them so that people would make fun of her. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, she just did the things and they didn't embarrass her in front of her friends. Right. In front of everybody. They did make her steal in the movie. Yeah. But, like, there wasn't the. But the last little thing was way different. Yes, that's true. Like, and, like, she had to steal the glass slippers instead of, um, instead of hiding them. Mm-hmm. It made her steal the glass slippers instead of finding them and trying to keep them hidden. Right. And the book had the whole thing where he tried the shoe on her foot as opposed to just, they were just there for a one little bit. Oh, and also... She didn't get tied to a tree in the book. That's true. She did not. <laughs> oh, um, other people that weren't, uh, that, um, weren't Libby and Olives and being Opa were, um, like, were, like, um, were, were, were giving them orders. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was, like, please, and she actually falls in the day yeah, pretty cool, pretty, pretty good, huh? And fun to watch. Everybody was surprised. Yep. Okay, cool. Thanks, Ella. Thanks for your input there. Do you have anything else you want to say about it? No. Okay.